Hey, Climate Conscious listeners, this is Greg Dalton. You're listening to the C1 Review, a podcast presenting highlights from some of our past shows. You can check out videos, podcasts, and more at climateone.org. This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. As America's economy gets greener, people have more choices than their parents did. If you wanted to raise a family, buy a house, send your kid off to college, then the narrative was that you'd have to grow the economy by burning fossil fuels. But we know that narrative is old now. We've debunked that. America's cities are leading that charge. Density is not enough. Cities have to be walkable. They have to be well-connected. They have to be places where people can live lightly. But there's a vigorous debate over who gets to enjoy the gains of a cleaner economy. If you don't connect this to jobs and to environmental justice, you're missing the real point of why we have to address climate change. Does greening our economy leave some people behind? Up next on Climate One. How do we ensure that the greening of our economy benefits everyone? Welcome to Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Devin Strolovich. Climate One conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. More people are living in cities than ever before. In China, 350 million people are moving into dense urban areas in one of the biggest demographic shifts in human history. How those communities are formed and powered will have a significant impact not only on the future of China, but on the air quality and climate in the United States. So what are the bold ideas that are shaping the future of cities? In this part of the program, we discuss urban parks and farms, microgrids and living buildings, dynamic urban planning that adapts to changing coastlines in severe weather, delivered by a volatile climate. Joining Greg are two visionary authors who write and think deeply about urban communities in the US, China, and around the world. Peter Calthorpe is an architect and urban planner who's championed walkable communities in transit-oriented development. He works in California and China on shaping land use and property development in ways that increase the quality of life and decrease carbon pollution. His latest book is Urbanism in the Age of Climate Change. Jonathan Rose has a real estate development planning and investment firm. He previously co-chaired the commission created to reduce the carbon footprint of New York City's huge transit system. Jonathan co-founded the Garrison Institute and created his Climate Mind and Behavior program. His new book is The Well-Tempered City, What Modern Science, Ancient Civilizations, and Human Nature Teach Us About the Future of Urban Life. Here's our conversation about cities of the future. Jonathan Rose, you write that the key to the future of cities uh, is found in the past. So tell us about some of the, how you open your book, where you touch on Jericho and other ancient civilizations and how they can inform where we are today. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk about a lesson from the deep past, from almost the, the begin, really before civilization began. And it, it's a climate story, and it's one of the reasons why civilization began. So about 10,000 BC, there was a climate incident in which all of a sudden the climate became much colder. And what happened was the grains that were then available adapted. Those that couldn't adapt, of course, uh, died or diminished. Um, they had a much shorter growing season. And so what they had to do was grow a much bigger seed head, and they had to actually grow a harder coating around it to protect the seed head from the winter, in effect. Uh, and that bigger seed head had many more calories and nutrients in it. So you ask, why did agriculture take place when it took place? There are many reasons. Part had to do with technology and part and actually had to do with cognition, how we actually understood things. But it turns out until that moment, there really weren't grains worth agriculting for, with, or you know, growing. Um, after that, there were these incredibly powerful, caloric, and nutritious grains uh, that were created by climate change. Uh, that period was about 300 years, and when that period was over, all of a sudden, the beginnings of civilization really expanded. So climate change uh, happened in a way that human civilization adapted positively, right. and we'll talk later about right. some more challenging adaptations right. to but, climate. But, but so what we see is that climate change 
always transforms the, the, the natural ecology and leaves things differently afterwards. And so what we really need to do is to increase the adaptive capacity of our current civilization to adapt to the climate change. That was naturally occurring to climate change. This is climate change that we have created. You also write a little bit about how naturally uh, civilization developed near waterways, coastlines, uh, that sort of thing. Peter Calthorpe, now most Americans live along the coast. A lot of the larger cities are on the coast or a major waterway. Uh, you're a champion of, of, of developing those cities in a more livable human way. Um, how do you see where we are right now in terms of this, this stage of increasing urbanism, increased density along the coast? Well, cities in general are really the vessel of the future of mankind. I mean, this country transitioned from agrarian population 98% to where we are now. China is going through exactly the same transition. We all know the earth is, is urbanizing. The question is, what kind of cities and what kind of lifestyles and what kind of urban footprint, what kind of uh, environmental weight will we put on there? Uh, a lot of people like to think that cities like uh, it's typical now to say Manhattan has the lowest carbon footprint per capita. Absolutely correct, but density is not enough. Uh, these cities have to be walkable, they have to be well-connected, as Jonathan points out. They have to be places where people can live lightly. So the difference, let's just look at it here in the United States. Uh, in the 60s, when we generated our vast middle class and, and incredible wealth, the average household was about 1,100 square feet. Now it's 2,300 square feet. Just the quantity of space to heat and cool is by many factors in per capita greater. We had the luxury of one car per household back then, and now it's 2.3. Uh, we were averaging under 10,000 vehicle miles per capita, and now it's, you know, for suburban places, 26,000 miles. So before we get to all the conservation and renewable energy sources, we have to look deeply at our lifestyles. And our lifestyles are driven in a really creative, interactive way by the kinds of environments we live in, the kinds of cities we create. I mean, Churchill once said, he was referring to buildings, of course, but we shape the built environment and then it shapes us. And that's really the challenge of city making and it's foundational to the climate question, I think. Jonathan Rose, the density is good for climate. People have lower carbon footprint. Yet today in San Francisco, in many cities, those are increasingly not affordable. So they are low carbon, but they are high wealth, high income areas. So help us address this uh, equity or inclusion challenge that we're feeling very painfully in the Bay Area. So the answer is you don't have enough density. Uh, the, there is a huge affordable housing issue in San Francisco. Actually, Affordability is defined as being able to spend up to 30% of your income on housing and not more. In America, today there are 20 million American families that spend more than 50% of their income on housing. And these are hardworking families. It's hard to think when you add the cost of transportation uh, and then where I don't even see how family can pay for health care and food and all the other things they need to when you spend 50% of your income on housing. So if the goal is 30% of our income on housing, to meet that, in San Francisco, the median uh, rental or home cost requires an income of $160,000 a year. So there's a huge affordability uh, gap here. The only way we're going to solve this is we have to preserve existing affordable housing, but we need to build more. We need to build dramatically more. The great thing is this area is a job generator, so growth is here and wants to continue to be here. We have to build our way out of it, and building our way out of it means much more density. Uh, and it means mixed income density and much more open space and creating much more livable communities. And these two things can go hand in hand. They are not currently politically acceptable. And as long as they remain unacceptable, higher density in San Francisco, then we're going to continue to have an affordable housing problem. Peter Calthorpe, uh, lots of areas are going through this. Uh, a lot of people would support what Jonathan right. Rose just said, uh, just in someone else's backyard. Uh, why can't it happen? Well, I do want to just differ a little bit from Jonathan. I think that what we need is urbanism, not density. We need different forms of urbanism, and we need to look at this as a regional issue. The basic quality of being walkable uh, and mixed use and relatively compact. We had a beautiful system in the United States 
prior to the post-World War II sprawl, which was streetcar suburbs. We had fabulous downtowns. We had these beautiful communities that you could get to by trolley. And then you would walk down Main Street over to Elm Street and you'd be home. And there was this connectivity that didn't really lean on the car too much. So there's a vision there in that. And so the challenge is for all the communities in the Bay Area to pick up the, the, and satisfy the needs. And there are wealthy communities that basically are saying no. They've never say no to a, a new commercial development or a new office building or a new employer, but they sure say no to high density housing and infill housing. So there's a whole issue around jobs housing balance in the Bay Area. The, the Silicon Valley is where all the jobs are and all the people that don't have wealthy salaries end up in the East Bay and beyond long commutes, a hugely painful economically and, and in terms of life for people to have to make those long commutes, whether they're firemen or teachers or what have you. And, uh, you know, our highways and our air suffer as a result. And it's very exclusionary and it's very unhealthy. Jonathan Rose, you write about the suburban poverty and also how the sub-mortgage uh, sort of machine contributed to that. So tell us how that came together. Well, uh, there is now more suburban poverty in America than there is urban poverty. People who live in the suburbs uh, who are, meet the definition of poverty actually are more burdened by their cost of transportation, but they are also more burdened by fewer resources. So if you are poor and striving and in a city, there's... There are after-school programs. There are, there are, there's a lot more resources for you than there are in the suburbs. Uh, so it's not a good situation for America. And, and uh, as Peter has pointed out, the suburbs tend to be places that are less likely to want to deal with it. And we have to rethink what the suburbs mean, too, because we have a, a series of aging suburbs with aging infrastructure, and many of them are the places that are not attracting the jobs that the more prosperous suburbs are. So they don't have the resources to deal with the growing poverty in the their areas also. So bring back this to climate change, it sounds like this is another example where green living is yet sort of for the, for the, the privilege that you can afford to live the low carbon lifestyle in an urban area. And if you're driving a car, living in the suburbs, uh, maybe you have good food choices, it's another way that the green economy is kind of skewed toward the fortunate. We have to equalize the landscape of opportunity. We now know America is deeply divided by zip code. There are places in the United States in which the, the healthiest people will live 15 or 20 years longer than in the worst zip codes. Um, we know that there are zip codes where income is hugely divided. We know there's uh, very interesting data that shows that literally opportunity of children, there are places in America where if you're born, your children are likely to have a lower than income you, and there are places if you're born statistically, your children are likely to have a higher income than you. That has to do with education system, a variety of other things. So we are a deeply fragmented, divided nat nation. I believe that America was conceived of as a land of opportunity. That's our mission statement. That's if you, if you boil us down, that's what we have to offer the world. And that means we have to equalize the landscape of opportunity for all. To do that means we need to spread affordable housing throughout all communities. And uh, we need to spread transit equally throughout all communities. We need to spread parks and open space. Education, the quality of education needs to be equalized throughout all of our communities. We should imagine an America where we where not only every child has a chance to do better, but every child, as you've started this question with, has a chance to live in a greener, healthier way. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about cities of the future. Greg Dalton will be back with his guests in just a moment. Welcome back. Greg Dalton is talking about the future of cities with architect and urban planner Peter Calthorpe, author of Urbanism in the Age of Climate Change, and real estate development planner Jonathan Rose, author of The Well-Tempered City, What Modern Science, Ancient Civilizations, and Human Nature Teach Us About the Future of Urban Life. Here's Greg. We're gonna to go to our uh, lightning round and ask you a series of short answer, yes or no, or one word questions. First for Jonathan Rose, uh, true or false, the 1950s produced no architecture of lasting value. <laughs> Generally true, but not totally true. Peter Calthorpe, Los Angeles will be a walkable and transit-friendly city within 20 years. Yes, absolutely. 
Jonathan Rose, European towns in general are more livable and functional than American towns. Yes. Peter Calthorpe, most Americans don't want to live like Europeans with their small homes and cars. False. Jonathan Rose, which city has the most advanced smart grid? I don't remember. Austin. Most, Thank you. It's glad most somebody read my book. stormwater system? Uh, Philadelphia. And this is easy. Best congestion traffic pricing. They're famous for is this. Is London. Peter Calthorpe, the living architect you respect most. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> the living architect. That makes it really difficult. Yeah. Can we come back to that later? He likes all those guys from the 50s. Uh, I, I have a hard time with architects. I have to tell you. <laughs> I, I think... But there's a new generation of architects that are finally getting it right. And uh, the whole lead movement and the focus on green has not only solved energy problems, but it's made more beautiful buildings. I mean, the buildings are much more textured and interesting and uh, memorable than they were. And they're much better to live in. I mean, it's it's a complete revolution. When I went to architecture school, it was Philip Johnson and all these evil people <laughs> doing, doing, you know, just cartoons, turning buildings into cartoons. And they came on the coattails of the brutalists who were happy about that name, <laughs> brutalism. So, I mean, it's hard. To, they, they, we're heading in the right direction. I can't point at the one I love the most. Renzo Piano, I will say, you know, who, who did the work in San Francisco here, uh, I love dearly because he really does care deeply about climate and he has a certain elegance to his work. Jonathan Rose, the living architect you most respect. I respect many of them, but I'm going to point out two. So uh, one is Nick Grimshaw, who is uh, from England. He's very, very, very green, very community focused. He's done amazing transit centers around the world, very technical in his work. And Jeannie Gang from Chicago, who's doing also really interesting urbanism. Peter Calthorpe, the living architect you least respect. Oh, that's easy. Rem Kulas. Jonathan Rose, living architect you least respect. The, the living architect that I least respect is actually not one architect, but if you actually think about it, most of America is not designed by people like Rem Kulhaus or Nick Grimshaw or any of these people. It, the, the mediocrity, so remember the question about the, I know it's the lightning round, but the question about the European villages, the general, just general background building that's just the ordinary building is so graceful and fitting with the environment and natural and made out of local materials and all that. And the general quality of just commercial development in the United States uh, is not. That's the end of our lightning round. How they do, let's give them a hand for getting through the, the gauntlet of the lightning round. Um, Peter Calthorpe, you spent a lot of the last six years in China. How China urbanizes is one of the, the most significant things for stabilizing the climate. Beijing was built on this sort of Stalinist grand boulevard model. It's, Beijing is not a walkable city. A lot of the other cities are still kind of built around the car. Tell us what's going on in China and how they're going to build the future of the city. Well, they inherited the Soviet model, which was also the, the modernist architect's vision of the 30s, which was towers in the park, super blocks, and a huge romance with the car. Um, and th- they've been building it at a pace that's beyond frightening. And of course, the results are deadly, literally deadly. So cities that once were dominated by pedestrians and bikes are now um, really you know, tragically moved away from that. And, and it's mostly because it's just too dangerous to be out there. Uh, getting to a corner is often a quarter mile walk. Getting across the street um, makes, I, I think you'd have to take four uh, market streets and stack them side by side to get a typical major ar- arterial. That's what happens when you build super blocks. You reduce the frequency of streets, and so every street gets huge and, of course, frustrates walking. So they're in a downward spiral. They're building the slums of the future. Tragically, if our um, urban renewal and uh, affordable housing failed dramatically, I shudder to think what's going to happen to some areas in China. However, um, they are a fact-based kind of engineer mentality culture. And um, uh, our group with the Energy Foundation and lots of other people have been 
proving over and over again that they can't afford to keep going in this direction. And they, as recently as this December, from the highest level, from the Central Committee, basically, for the first time in 37 years, issued a new set of urban design standards, which said, among other things, we will build small blocks, we will limit the amount of automobile use in cities, we will have targets for mode split to transit, uh, every city will have to comply with. Um, we will have open space and civic centers within walking distance of every new house. I mean, a, a, a laundry list of best practices, I'm happy to say. And it's a little frightening because, of course, it's completely top down. I mean, this was not uh, any kind of collaborative consensus, people uh, uh, oriented political structure, but it is the right direction and they are setting off in the right direction. They're really serious about solving their air quality, air quality and congestion problems. They understand that their economy can't succeed as it shifts to a more white collar service economy from an industrial economy. It can't um, succeed with unlivable cities. Um, and it's not their goal. I mean, the goal has been to move people from the countryside where poverty is highest into cities where economic opportunity does exist, and where services, clinics, schools, running water, sewers, wa you know, parks, all these things really can be delivered. So they, they, at the same time that they're building the wrong kind of city, this is the, the biggest shift away from poverty probably in the history of mankind. So I have to acknowledge that at the same time that we think it could be done better. I think it will be done better, and uh, they're very serious about climate change issues, I'm happy to say, um, and, but they see it as related to all these other livability issues. And so, very fortunately, I think they're shifting into a profoundly better direction. So, you know, what's interesting is for 3,500 years, from about 2,000 BC to about 1,500, uh, the, China had an amazing system of city planning. It was that didn't vary actually during all that period of time. The buildings got more sophisticated, but it was a whole organizational system, and it was entirely designed around the idea of balancing the forces of humans and nature. And the idea of harmony was deeply embedded within it. And um, China now talks about building cities or building the future with what they call Chinese characteristics. And I think the next step is they actually have to look back at the great history of what Chinese characteristics truly were in the past and try and figure out how to in integrate those into their future. Peter also mentioned water. Uh, Jonathan Rose, I want to ask you about water and food uh, supplies uh, with cities because that's something that we've become these long supply yeah. chains where water is trucked in on, on uh, diesel-powered trucks and, and plastic bottles yeah. and get to the future where there's maybe urban farms right. and food and water is closer to a well-tempered city. Right. So 98% uh, of the things that go into a city today in most cities in the world leave six months later as waste. And there's no way that we can have a population of 10 billion people on Earth have prosperity increases, people are describing, which means people are going to consume more and uh, have the climate change. And have the, the, it's, it's totally unsustainable. You know, we used to say unsustainable, it meant like that's not so good, but unsustainable actually means collapse without moving from linear systems to circular systems. This was first done in uh, Windhoek, which is the capital of Namibia, a, city, a country in southern Africa, desert city, and it was rapidly growing and the desert was increasing, and they were running out of water. They brought in an engineer who designed a system to take their wastewater and to clean it perfectly and put it back and reuse it as drinking water. That system has run for 40 years without ever a failure. The engineer designed it said, we need to judge water by its quality and not its history. So that's one example of linear systems. We now have water treatment systems that can remove the nitrogen and the uh, phosphorus which come from the urine in the systems for $100 a ton and sell them to fertilizer manufacturers for $400 a ton. We have water treatment systems that can capture all the methane, burn it, and not only fuel the plant itself, but um, uh, provide enough energy for thousands of homes. So what's happening is we're beginning to rethink, for example, a water treatment plant, which was considered a societal negative, is now becoming a factory of uh, resources for communities. Now imagine if you take every single aspect of what comes into a, a city, 
that we have been treating as waste and think about how we can create the infrastructure to turn it into local jobs. By the way, also design jobs to design these operating jobs uh, and using the resources and create those into jobs. And as we create circular systems, um, uh, it makes the cities much more climate resilient because they're much less dependent upon the resources the world's going to run out of. China, by the way, in its central policy in 2012, this is called a circular economy and dedicated itself to a circular economy. We'll see if they can actually get there. America is way behind in this idea. So briefly, tell us about microgrids and living buildings, how those right. might be part of gotcha. this, this. Gotcha. So once you begin to think about circles, then you can... T so living buildings is an idea that came out of the Pacific Northwest. And these are buildings that are actually regenerative of nature and that they... Uh, number one, get their energy load and their consumption down very, very low by a lot of insulation, really high, great design. Then, then they have a lot of solar that creates energy and they have a lot of, they capture all their rainwater. And if they can recycle that, clean it and recycle it through their systems, they become almost independent. But what we need in cities is not independence, but interdependence. So imagine if you begin to connect all those kinds of buildings together as a grid, um, and then think of other energy sources. So we can be using cogeneration. We can be using, eventually there'll be batteries and large capacitors. If we're using, um, you know, plug-in hybrids whose batteries can be contained, uh, used as part of that. And tie these all into energy grids. And actually there's two forms of energy. There's the electric energy that powers buildings. And there's also the heat energy when we burn for uh, uh, you know, furnaces and generators and things, but also that heat energy can be circulated. There's a microgrid that's being built now um, in Minneapolis between the university and a hospital where they're exchanging heat in a fantastic loop. As that happens, and you do it multi-way, just the way Peter writes beautifully about how we need to get from arterials to street grids, when you create energy and heat grids, all of a sudden you get some of the systems that we call self-healing. If one piece breaks, there are multiple parts Anyway, the bottom line is with a lot of good design and smart data and continuous dynamic adjusting, these can use far lower amounts of initial energy. The energy they do use can be far more recycled throughout the system, and you begin to actually mimic nature. You're listening to Climate One with Greg Dalton. Greg's been talking about cities of the future with architect and urban planner Peter Calthorpe, author of Urbanism in the Age of Climate Change, and Jonathan Rose, author of The Well-Tempered City, What Modern Science, Ancient Civilizations, and Human Nature Teach Us About the Future of Urban Life. Tell us about where you see yourself in the green economy, and let us know what you think about the program. Leave a comment or write a review on iTunes. And follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Climate One. In 2016, former California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, a Republican, and current Governor Jerry Brown, a Democrat, threw a party together to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the state's main climate law, which Schwarzenegger signed and Brown recently extended with the help of a Republican vote. And several new laws come into effect this year that will impact the electricity that runs our toys and the food that comes to our kitchen tables. Green living initiatives in California are often the start of trends that go national. But with issues from transit to housing to jobs all affected by our changing climate, how do we ensure that these trends don't leave some people behind? Joining Greg today are two important players in California's green politics. Kevin DeLeon is President Pro Tem of the California State Senate. He's the first Latino to hold that position in 130 years. He was a community organizer in Los Angeles before being elected to the State Assembly 10 years ago. Antonio Villaragosa is the former mayor of Los Angeles. He was the first Latino to hold that position in over 100 years. He also served as Speaker of the California State Assembly and has been active on the national political stage. Here's Greg talking about the politics of a greening economy. I'd like to start with Senator DeLeon. How can California support a growing population and grow its economy and tackle climate change? Can it do all of those things at the same time? I think we're doing it right now uh, as we speak. Um, I think we have successfully delinked and decoupled GDP from carbon. Uh, and we've done so with intentionality and a sense of purpose with regards to our carbon targets that we've laid out. Uh, we have sent very clear market signals uh, to venture capitalists because we have received over 60% of the venture capital in the clean energy space. Uh, we have a very ambitious uh, renewal portfolio standard, which is 50% by the year 2030. 
Um, I think it's very ambitious, but I believe that the IOUs as well as the MOUs will meet that target way before 2030. And as a result, we've created more than 500,000 jobs. Now, these are jobs that are real, that are tangible, that you can verify. Uh, they're not jobs that you can uh, outsource to another state or offshore to Guangzhou, China, or elsewhere. They are in the clean energy space. And it hasn't been by happenstance. And letting the market forces, whether they're regional, national, or global, create these jobs. We actually have done it by the policies that we have moved forward in the state capital. And again, we have delinked and decoupled carbon from GDP because the last point I want to make on this is understandably that if you wanted to raise a family, buy a house, send your kid off to college, then the narrative was that you'd have to grow the economy by burning fossil fuels. And largely, we have become the largest GDP on planet Earth by burning fossil fuels. But we know that narrative is old now. We've debunked that, and we've uh, proven that you can delink carbon and grow the economy at the same time, and we've done so quite successfully in California. Another piece of this, Mayor Villaraigosa, is transit. Uh, something amazing is happening in Los Angeles, the city uh, car mecca of the world. There's actually a real functioning subway happening there that started with, uh, with Measure R. Uh, what, what's the ridership numbers like, and is it possible that L.A. will be a walkable transit city in our lifetime? It actually started with my mom. My mom rode a bus her whole life. I, I was sitting on the RTD board in 1992, it's the Rapid uh, Transit District. Right, and uh, right after the civil disturbances argued for a 50 cent fare program to build ridership, because like mm -hmm. uh, the civil disturbances of 65 in Watts, uh, when they did an analysis of what some of the issues were in these communities, transportation and affordability were a big part of it. Um, and so it started with my mom because she wrote the bus. And uh, once I, you know, I sat on the MTA board I was, I, for a brief period, I chaired transportation here. Um, I said that we were going to make move LA from the single car uh, passenger uh, capital of the world to a, a place where we're reimagining the city and and one where we were addressing the affordability issue. So trying to connect the issue of transportation, cleaning up the air with communities that have historically been, you know, left behind. The communities that were behind Measure R at the highest rate, Watts, the east side, all the poorer areas of LA, disproportionately higher, just like our school bonds. We, th this was a strategic, deliberative effort on our part to build a broader coalition. As you know, we built one busway, three rail lines, and we're in construction in two more, more than any other city during that period and more than any other administration in LA history. But it was always, it wasn't just about moving people, cleaning up the air. We did project labor agreements where we said 38% of the people that work on this are the people that voted for it. before. I'd come out to the construction projects to meet these people and shake their hands, and half of them lived in San Diego and, you know, uh, places all over the place. And I said, hey, I want to see L.A. people on our projects. So we did. It was very deliberative and very focused on building a broader coalition for these things, for cleaning up the air, for addressing the respiratory uh, illness issues, which were disproportionately in the poor areas, making it affordable for people, building affordable housing along transit lines. It was broader than just building rail. We're hearing about California power politics at Climate One. Greg Dalton will continue his conversation in just a moment. Welcome back to Climate One. We're talking about the politics of a greening economy with Kevin DeLeon, President Pro Tem of the California State Senate, and Antonio Villaraigosa, former mayor of Los Angeles and former speaker of the California State Assembly. Here's our host, Greg Dalton. Mayor Villaraigosa, uh, climate change seems to be often a remote issue for, for people who think of melting glaciers, polar bears. How do you make it relevant to people who think climate, well, maybe there's storms in Florida, but how do you make it relevant as a concern to people in California? jobs, you know, and economic development. In 1994, when I first got elected, maybe 30 percent, 25 to 30 percent of Democrats were taking on the AQMD, the Air Quality Management District, basically buying into the business argument that cleaning up the air 
had the effect of undermining uh, the business community and particularly manufacturing in L.A. And uh, Hilda Solis and I, uh, back in 1994, uh, led the effort to say, hold it. Uh, we don't buy this jobs blackmail uh, argument that, in fact, uh, you can create jobs uh, and build a, a clean tech environment, develop the technologies uh, in California, at the time we were, I was talking about L.A., uh, that you can export and create jobs around the world. And that, you know, has been the framework for Fabian Nunez uh, 10 years ago now with AB32, uh, Kevin DeLeon extending it. Uh, I think uh, for a long time now, there are many of us here in California who have understood uh, that we can grow the economy and clean up our environment. And uh, so I think jobs is critical. And in that vein, let me just say this. I've been an environmentalist, uh, number one American city in the eight <clears throat> years I was mayor. Uh, in reducing carbon emissions. We signed on to Kyoto in 2005. By, Kyoto says you reduce carbon emissions by 7% of 1990 levels by 2012. Uh, we were at 28%. Uh, only London, Copenhagen, number one at 40. Berlin at 36. Toronto at 34. LA at 28. Uh, went from 3% renewables to 20%. But we were always focused on a clean tech sector. Uh, and we always understood that we had to focus on environmental justice. The problem with the environmental movement, and it's been true for a very long time, is they focus a lot on the abstract and not enough on the concrete. And the people who disproportionately suffer from the effects of climate change are poor people, people of color. Uh, we saw that at the port of Los Angeles, uh, where we reduced uh, truck emissions by more than 90%. The people that were dying of uh, respiratory diseases uh, in that area were, you know, poor people and people of color who lived around these areas. So if you don't connect this to jobs and to environmental justice, you're missing the real point of why we have to address climate change. And uh, both Kevin De Leon and Fabian Nunez um, understood that with AB 32 and its extension, and uh, I did the Carl Moyer Act, which was the, the largest expansion of enforcing the Clear Air Act until AB 32. And the efforts we did uh, were always focused around jobs and environmental justice. AB 32 being California's landmark climate law that's 10 years old right now. Um, Senator DeLeon, uh, there's a housing crisis in this state. There's talk of a $3 billion bond for state funding. Uh, climate change seems pretty remote when you're being priced out of your neighborhood. And what can be done about the housing crisis that Californians are feeling, uh, especially here in the Bay Area? Well, listen, I used to live in the Bay Area. I used to live in San Francisco. I love San Francisco. Um, and I know the housing crisis uh, is unlike any other place in the nation. Obviously, I live... And uh, I represent an area that uh, our mayor used to represent as, as Assemblymember and Speaker, Echo Park and Silver Lake, the same displacement issue. Senator Jim Bell from the South Bay, uh, from San Jose, uh, who is my chair of transportation and housing, has moved forward a $3 billion uh, bond uh, to help alleviate the housing crisis in California. I'm hoping to work very closely with the speaker, uh, Anthony Rendon, and to convince our governor, Jerry Brown, that it is important that we do take on some more debt to deal with this housing crisis because of the displacement issue of folks having to travel so far away uh, uh, to drive into the city, uh, to drive into Los Angeles, the carbon footprint that's increased, how you disrupt families. Uh, we really have to, at a state level and at the local level, the county board of supervisors here in San Francisco, city council members dealing with the issue of nimbyism, we have to collectively really roll up our sleeves and tackle this together. Because if we allow the nimbyism voices to be the loudest, well, the problem doesn't go away with regards to housing. And it's not just impacting those at the lowest economic strata. We're talking about middle-class families as well, too. So there's a major problem. There's a major crisis. And Democrats and Republicans have to unite and come together to deal with this issue. And I'm hoping that we can work out a deal with the Assembly. I know Assemblymember David Chu here in San Francisco uh, is a very strong advocate, as well as Tony Thurman across the Bay 
in enrichment, I think we can put our heads together, and I do predict the issue of housing will be one of the top three issues that the legislature will tackle. Uh, let's talk about the, the voting block, the Latino voting block. There's been a lot written about that, Mayor Villaraigosa. Um, you've said that, that they uh, feel these issues because they're close to it, they're, they're breathing it, et cetera. Uh, but does that mean that they will then consider that when they go to the ballot box? Because the conventional wisdom is people don't vote on energy climate issues. They vote on maybe health care, pocketbook issues. That's why I think you have to connect it to jobs and job creation and to jobs uh, that there's a pipeline for that community to be able to attain. So uh, as an example, uh, you know, everything we did around climate change, uh, we connected to developing a clean tech community. We've got USC, UCLA, Caltech, but also trade tech and the community colleges to help with solar installation and other uh, clean tech jobs that don't require a four-year education. So we, we were always focused around job creation because that's, that's the issue that, frankly, transcends all communities. People want a job. They want economic development. Uh, so uh, because we always understood that the biggest argument about doing all of the things around cleaning up the air and the water uh, and moving to uh, was this fact that uh, we were losing jobs in the old economy. So we argued we, we need to create jobs in the new economy, but make sure that there's a pipeline for all communities, and particularly the communities that have been most, uh, most impacted and usually are at the end of the line when it comes to uh, job distribution. So, uh, you know, we were focused on that, and that's, that's how we kind of got a broader community behind these issues. I mean, when we first started doing this in 94, I'm, I'm telling you, there was a sizable group of Democrats that bought in uh, to the notion that this was a job killer. A sizable group, a 30%, 25 to 30% group of Democrats that were very much against it, and oftentimes led by uh, communities of color. You know, as an example, when I did the parks bond, largest parks bond in U.S. history, a $2.1 billion bond, the agreement with the environmental community who, b before that bond, all of the parks went to suburban areas. And I said, hold it. We're going to put parks where people are. I'll give you your $2 billion bond, but you're giving me, you know, urban parks. So all of this was always around connecting. Let's, let's sell this as, uh, you know, but... Uh, uh, based on you know addressing equity issues, but also sell it as, as uh, uh, the president the pro tem just said by building a broader coalition and a bigger majority for it, you know, LA's you know uh, a country in the sense that it's so big and and got a big Republican and a big business community that was oppositional, but we we sold them on this was good for business. Senator Leon, let me add something too because this is important uh, because. Um, I think that uh, when it comes to energy, when it comes to climate change and uh, clean air and clean water, I do believe strongly because I've seen the empirical evidence. It's not just anecdotal, uh, but I've seen the data, uh, poll after poll, that communities of color, in fact, uh, score the highest. And then when you throw a second test at them, and I mean you throw the kitchen sink at them, if you support climate change policies, the economy will be destroyed, your utility rates will go through the roof, um, uh, you will lose your job as a result. When you test them on a second round, uh, they stay strong and steady. They don't uh, equivocate. So communities of color, Latinas especially, Asian Americans and African Americans stay very strong. And it runs contrary uh, to the, the old narrative uh, that communities of color really don't believe in climate change or this is an issue that's the Bill McKibbins of the world, or if you read Mother Jones, you know, and, you know, it's sort of kind of that domain. And this is what uh, Antonio just mentioned, which is really critical, because it's actually expanding and opening up your coalition and being inclusive and more diverse. Because for some folks, the environment begins and ends at the beach. And that's simply not the reality for a lot of other folks in California. We're going to go to our audience questions. Welcome. Hi, thanks. Uh, James Talea with Climate Action uh, Advocacy Group in Sunnyvale in Silicon Valley. Uh, we've been talking with our mayor, Glenn Hendricks, in Sunnyvale about trying to get ahead of 
uh, AB32 and now SB32, the extension, uh, but he thinks it's an unfunded mandate and there's nothing that forces the city to do anything. Uh, so what about the state policy and the state law now can press cities to do what they need to do to lead, especially in Silicon Valley, to show the way? Well, I think someone like the mayor, it's unfortunate to hear this from uh, a city, a town like Sunnyvale in Santa Clara County, uh, which is, you know, the uh, the birthplace of, of innovation for the world, That this type of thinking, uh, which is, is quite surprising in the Bay Area. Uh, it's clear that if he doesn't move forward with uh, the policies that California has set forth, uh, he will set back the city of, of Sunnyvale. Everyone deserves clean air, clean water. Everyone deserves uh, economic growth and access to a job, how we recalibrate a new economy of tomorrow by creating the jobs. Uh, be mindful about one thing. With our policies, we are actually recalibrating a new economy of tomorrow. Again, let me underscore and emphasize, we're not allowing the market forces, either in China, India, the European Union, or policies, or lack thereof, out of Washington, D.C., dictating the economic growth in California. We're actually sending the market signals from the policies, extension of our targets of AB32, manifested in SB32. It's quite unfortunate. If you like, I'd pick up the phone and I'll call the mayor myself personally, if you like. <laughs> Next question. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, uh, Anna Chalet. I'm a reporter with New American Media. Uh, this is a question about threats to the coastline. It's, it's our understanding that the current Coastal Commission is pretty generally um, pro-development. And so my question is, are you worried about the Coastal Commission? And what do you think are the biggest threats to the coast right now? I would say this. Uh, the reason not for some of my comments today, uh, there are some that spend so much time, and we should spend time on preserving that, and not enough time on the environmental justice issues that I just spoke to. And if we want to create a broad coalition, a majority coalition around these issues, there, there got to be more than a few focus areas. Uh, you know, uh, my tenure as speaker protecting the coast it was, you know, second to none. But we also, we spent a lot of time on some of the environmental justice issues that I think are really critical and important too. And my, if I have a criticism of some of my friends, they spend too much time on the one and not enough time on the other. And that's what puts us in these situations where we can't get the two-thirds vote that we need uh, sometimes. So our next question, welcome to Climate One. Hi, my name is Jesse Rancher with the Nature Conservancy. Uh, California is often looked in, as the golden example of, uh, for our climate progress, and deservedly so, thanks to your great progress. But I want to look uh, briefly beyond our state bounds. So what, what do you recommend we can do to scale up the success that we've seen in California and replicate it across other geographies and ideally incentivize action at a federal level? I think cities. Look, um, when I signed on in 2005 to Kyoto, I was one of 150 mayors that had signed on. By the time I became president of the U.S. Conference of Mayors, more than uh, 1,100 mayors had signed on. We weren't waiting for our state capitals or the federal government. You know, L.A. is a, you know, L.A. metropolitan area is the 17th largest economy in the world. We weren't waiting on them. We were doing it um, way before they were asking us to. And I think mayors are leading the way. You were uh, in Paris. I was in Copenhagen before that. Uh, the only place where there was real action was with the mayors because the national governments were pointing fingers at one another and saying, you know, who could do the least, back, particularly at Copenhagen, uh, more than Paris. And, you know, the mayors were trying to see who could outdo one another. And uh, so... You know, the mayors have been leading the way across the country. Mayor of New York, mayor of L.A., mayor of San Francisco, mayor of Portland, mayor of Chicago, mayor of Miami, all of us. I did the most far-reaching adaptation, climate adaptation study in the world with UCLA. I didn't have to be told to do it. I did it knowing the coast. Venice is going to be impacted. The, you know, all along the coast with climate change, we're going to see the impact. So we didn't wait on, uh, you know, the capital, state capital or, the, or, or Washington, D.C. So I think that's where the ac action is. Big cities, particularly progressive cities. You know, Austin's another one. There, there's cities all around the country and the world, frankly, that are kind of leading 
this issue of climate change in a real concrete way. But let me add something too, because this is important, uh, because for a state like California, with all the different mayors and the different goals and the different targets, you do need to, at a macro level, to make sure you have one uniform target above the board that everyone's gonna lead towards, because you can't have one mayor that says 20% RPS, another says 15% RPS, another one says I can only go this far, 25% RPS. That's why we're doing 50% RPS. RPS, uh, clean energy clean standards. Clean re yeah. renewable portfolio standard, which means that the IOUs and MOUs have to generate half of their electricity uh, from either wind, solar, or geothermal. And that's why as a subnational, uh, we are not a leader, we are the leader in the entire world. Copenhagen, it, it, it was kind of disastrous because things yeah, that really disastrous. it was disastrous. Are you, kidding? you know, and 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 Paris was because when we arrived in Paris, when California arrived, you know, when the Senate, uh, the Assembly, and the Governor arrived, uh, we were treated like heads of states because this is not theoretical, but this is uh, real implementation and execution and verifiable goals, you know. So if we can put people to work and become less carbon intensive and clean up our air, we've met our goals and we can export those policies to the rest of the state and around the world. Greg Dalton has been talking about the politics of a greening economy with Kevin DeLeon, President Pro Tem of the California State Senate, and Antonio Villaraigosa, former mayor of Los Angeles and former speaker of the California State Assembly. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. Please join us next time for another conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. <laughs> Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California. Greg Dalton is our executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Carlos Manuel is our booker and associate producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. I'm Devin Strolovich, the editor. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio.